For at least a couple of centuries, there were many earnest historians obsessed about finding the precise cause that prompted the origin of modern civilizations. And by that, I mean Western sedentary cultures, which of course have been seen as the height of human sophistication. At least that was the core narrative of European and Anglo-American societies. We gladly know now that our human history is much more complex than that, and we owe anthropologists, archaeologists, and cultural historians of the past century a lot because they expanded the horizons of study beyond the classical world and looked into every continent's history and challenged all views and assumptions. We know, for instance, that all civilizations didn't start in Mesopotamia, because we have learned that the Neolithic was a hugely transcendent period for humanity, as it brought the global agricultural revolution that reshaped the lives of millions of human hordes that made the eventful transition from hunter-gatherers to farmers. And with the abundance of grains, we get to a turning point for our diets, culture, spirituality, law and technology, because grains gave us the happy accident of discovering and mastering controlled fermentation and brewing to produce alcoholic drinks on a regular basis. Throughout history and across cultures, intoxicants, and specifically alcohol, has been our most faithful companion, and we have bestowed upon it meanings and functions in our private and collective lives. And whether we consume it or not, we are not indifferent to its existence and the power it has in our societies. The book that brings us here today, A Short History of Drunkenness, How, Why, Where, and When Humankind Has Gotten Merry from the Stone Age to the Present by Mark Forsyth is a little, sharp, relentlessly funny and very much enlightening read that takes us into a wild historical journey, diving into different cultures, places, and times where alcohol shaped the fate of humans in such a profound way that he still echoes to this very day. You are listening to Hungry Books, a podcast about the best books ever written on the subject of food. I'm your host, Rocio Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author, and each episode I present a book that will change your life. Hello, hungry bookworms, and happy new year, as we're still picking up the pieces from 2020 and getting our bearings of this year. We are finally approaching the end of season one of this show, and it seems very fitting to start the year with a full glass. I am afraid I don't really know what drunkenness is. That is the promising opening that the author makes in this book, and I'm already hooked. Certain types of alcohol are naturally occurring, and as such, they have existed for thousands of years without the intervention of humans. We know that many animals have learned to identify it and even acquired a taste for it. It is not uncommon to see drunk elks and tree shrews, or even elephants and many primates that have understood the basics of fermentation and deliberately collect fruits and patiently wait for them to go off and fizzy so they can get hammered. The bottom line is that it is entirely natural and logical that we humans also acquire a taste for it, but more important than taste itself are the many side effects of its consumption. So, this book does a fantastic job at taking a historical, anthropological, and even sociological analysis about the cultural functions that alcohol has been given by looking into key historical moments. We come out of it surprised, educated, curious, and somehow very motivated to have a glass of, well, anything. In the notes of this show, you will find a lot of links of all the things I will be talking about during this episode. And of course, you will find the details to contact me on social media and find more about my work. I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So let's get on with the show.
Alcohol is a curious substance. Just like with many other things, we surround ourselves with what we eat, what we wear and use. Well, these are much more than just mere things or substances, because they are all cultural products. Products that we codify and use as social markers that signal our taste, position, beliefs, wealth, and so on. Just very much like Pierre Bourdieu described in his famous book, Distinction, a social critique of the judgment of taste. Now, of course, you know that this will be a super boozy episode. So let's jump into what alcohol brings into our lives. Well, the active ingredient of all alcoholic drinks, as you know very well, is ethanol. And it acts exactly the same way in every alcoholic drink. But we convince ourselves that the effects of certain drinks in our minds and bodies are different, which I suppose is the ultimate testament of suggestion and cultural constructs. Yet, curiously, from a sociological and psychological point of view, we actually do tend to act different when we drink wine than when we drink beer. And people will even have a completely different attitude towards vodka than the one they have for moonshine. The ritualized use of alcohol occurred pretty quickly for the first farming humans of the Neolithic. They linked intoxication with a trance-like liminal state that allowed them to experience the world in such different and intense ways that sobriety just couldn't provide. And we can assume that they became so fascinated with alcohol's effects that it made it a very popular substance. Hence, the need to create and establish rules became a defining factor in the shaping of cultures that anthropologists call dry and wet. Dry cultures, we are told, are the ones where people are very cautious about alcohol and have very strict rules around its consumption. But when it is allowed, they drink it like it's going out of fashion. Wet cultures, on the other hand, are very relaxed about everyday drinking and they have built positive associations around it, but very rarely drink themselves to oblivion. I'm telling you this very important distinction now because I will be referencing it through my revision of this book. And it might bring some surprising revelations, which will make you go, aha, uh-huh. and then many things will make sense. Also, another quick technical note. Many historians of alcoholic drinks have been calling, have been calling wine all sorts of drinks uh, when in fact many are distilled or fermented. And in the case of beer, it is not exclusively made with barley. It can also be made with millet, sorghum, oats, buckwheat and wheat. Thus, it is also correct to call these drinks beer. And having said that, we set sail through the 18 chapters containing this book that covers thousands of years of history from the Stone Age to Prohibition. Bear in mind that this is a short history of drunkenness. There's really a big effort behind the curation of each passage that attempt to explain big questions, such as where did people drink, who did people get drunk with, at what time did they drink, which were the rules around them, and who had the privilege of doing so, and many, many other questions. Now, how about we meet our author, Mark Forsyth, who is surprisingly young. And I have to be very generous here because we are almost the same age. He's an annoyingly prolific writer who studied English language and literature in Lincoln College, but found his passion as a very self-possessed journalist, writer, proofreader, and in his own words, a professional pedant. He also runs on video and audio and is quite enjoyable. So just Google Mark Forsyth BBC or Mark Forsyth Tech Talk, and then you will see how he totally owns his very particular style, and I find him refreshingly entertaining. Forsyth is all over the internet, but for some reason I only came to know him because of the very book I'm presenting for you today. But he has also written many, many articles and books in including the unknown unknown bookshops and the delight of not getting what you wanted, Horologicon, a day's jaunt through the lost words of the English language, and the Etymologicon, a circular stroll through the hidden connections of 
the English language. And if you want to read more about him on the show's notes, you will find a link to Forsyth's social media and website. So off to a spinning odyssey we go, from the caves to ancient Egypt, Greece, the Aztec world, roaring Vikings and Chinese boosters who found mysticism at the bottom of a bottle. So these are my highlights and thoughts of each chapter. Chapter number one, evolution. Forsyth is of the idea that we have evolved to drink, and we can thank our very distant hominid ancestors for it. Why did they take a second sip of some fermented pulp of bubbly semi-rotten juice or soaked grains? We shall never know. But the important thing is that they did, and then they went for more. At this most basic level, alcohol Mark points out, has a lot of sugars, empty calories, we might call them now, but they might have led these ancestors of us to think of it as an acceptable thing to consume. And then the biggest lesson from this is mammals and early humans learned that alcohol was best consumed in groups. That led to a communal sensation of being hungry and hungover. Certainly, this was a consequence they thought it was very worth having. Chapter number two, the prehistory of drinking. At the dawn of the Neolithic period, the only alcohol available was the one naturally occurring and cave-dwelling prehistoric humans would only occasionally indulge in fermented fruit or juice when they were not chasing big animals or painting rock walls. But then we're confronted with one of history's biggest puzzles, which was the reason that convinced hunter-gatherers to become farmers. Was it food or was it booze? Well, Mark gives us six reasons why he thinks it was alcohol that kick-started our transition into sedentarism. But before I tell you what those reasons consist of, let me clarify that when we talk about the agricultural revolution, it is essentially something that occurred around the farming of a handful of cereals. And these were millet, sorghum, rice, corn or maize, wheat, barley and oats, all of which can be fermented. And regardless of the way we named these drinks, it was practically the same product, fermentation of starches that resulted essentially in what we will now call beer. Right, so these are our six reasons. 1. Fermented drinks are low-tech, that will provide nutrients, caloric content, and it will get you drunk at the same time. Yay! Unlike any type of bread that will require a much longer process, transforming grains, milling them, making a dough, shaping it, and cook it. Second reason, fermented drinks like beer contain vitamins, namely vitamin B, and fermenting and drinking is much less risky than hunting, so it really had a great advantage. Number three, naturally fermented foods are more complex and nutritious than bread any bread, and it has multiple benefits for our digestive and immune systems. Not that prehistoric people knew about this, but maybe they felt the effect. Number four, fermented drinks can be stored for longer periods of time, unlike bread. Number five, the alcohol in fermented drinks purifies the water that was used to make it, making it a much safer liquid to drink. Now, of course, you can see that random sources of water wouldn't really be a risk for hunter-gatherers because they were pretty much pooing as they were moving along. But for permanent settlements, hygiene and contamination was always an issue. And last, the side effects of consuming alcohol is what sealed the deal. Meaning, there was enough cultural drive to value this drink, its nutritious effects and side effects of drunkenness as a good thing. So according to Forsyth, we invented farming because we wanted to get drunk on a regular basis. Chapter 3. Sumerian Bars With farming came villages, and with villages came cities. Cities meant technology, planned food systems, surplus, economic growth, and free time. 
So pretty much everything we have accomplished in terms of civilized progress, we really owe it to the first farmers. There were thousands of such first villagers all over the world, but in the case of Europe, they tie their origin to the Middle Eastern cultural region we now call Mesopotamia, whose first sedentary farmers have left evidence of this transition that dates back to around 3,500 years before Christ. So it seems that once humans mastered written communication with cuneiform, which is the one that looks like triangles, the first thing that people wrote about was alcohol. And there is a staggering amount of archaeological evidence to make very clear that beer was important to them. And we can confidently say that Sumerians, and by extent all Mesopotamian folk, were wet cultures. Farmers drunk, merchants drunk, kings and priests drunk. And they had a very robust menu that included <clears throat> Barley beer, emmer wheat beer, brown beer, dark beer, light beer, red beer, sweet beer, beer with honey and all sorts of spiced brews. Also, beer mixed with wine and filtered beer. Not bad for an early start. Chapter number four, ancient Egypt. So the Egyptians really went wild with alcohol and actually went to great lengths to create complex myths to justify their drinking. And this is a very, very compressed version of the beer myth in ancient Egypt. So according to them, the world was created by a happy accident, as Atom, one of the gods, was pleasuring himself. And the resulting substance from this ended up in his mouth, and humanity was created from this. Fast forward a little and the gods were not that amused with humanity because they just seemed to be an ungrateful lot that were often bitching about the sun god Ra. He is the one that has the head of a falcon and a disc on his head. So he got understandably angry and then he sent the goddess Hathor who had multiple shapes. One of them was the goddess of fertility represented by a lady with long hair and one of those big discs or halo above her head. But also, she was the goddess of destruction and her appearance in this case was that of a woman with the head of a lion and her name changed from Hathor to Sekhmet. She gladly accepted the mission and off she went to kill humanity and slaughtered everyone she saw until Ra began to feel a bit guilty and sorry and then called the killing off. But Sekhmet was having none of it. Ra had to figure out a way to stop her without actually confronting her. And the plan was to make 7,000 barrels of beer and dye it red to fool her into believing that this was human blood. Sekhmet got understandably excited and she drank it all and then peacefully fell asleep. Problem solved. She forgot all about the killing spree and humanity was saved by beer. So what resulted of these myths of origin is that for Egyptians, drink meant sex and sex meant drink. And celebrating alcohol was a holy activity and actually it was their duty to do so. So that is when we are introduced to the festival of drunkenness, which seems to have been celebrated twice a year in honor, of course, of the goddess Hathor or Sekhmet and the beer that got her very, very drunk. So this festival, in a nutshell, meant that all Egyptians, rich and poor, would scrub up and put on their glad rags and meet at dusk at Hathor's temple. After some praying and drumming and dancing, the leading priest made a dramatic entrance by navigating from the Nile, and upon disembarking, he proceeded to present to the goddess an offer of red-dyed beer, followed by more dancing, singing and praying. And as the night progressed, the pharaoh left and the mother of all holy drinking began. They were all drunk and then they all had sex. And yes, it got very, very messy very, very quickly and it went on all night long. Many women got pregnant and those children would often go to become priests who were very cocky and proud of their origins. And of course, as you can imagine, this wasn't the only alcohol-related ritual. But the author makes it very clear that this was by far the most memorable. And I'm not here to argue with him about that. 
Chapter number five, the Greek Symposium. Now, most of us know a thing or two about ancient Greeks. They gifted the world with many things, including a crippling sense of self-awareness, a permanent existential crisis, and a very much inflated ethnocentrism. While the Greeks frowned upon beer, they drank wine, and loads of it, but always watered down. And as we're quickly reminded, they have always made things needlessly complicated. So the author argues that more than anything else, more than philosophy or drinking or sculpture, the Greeks loved being sniffy about foreigners. So according to the Greeks, they were the only people who drank the right way and anyone who dared not be like them was wrong. So the Persians were barbarians because they drank beer and the Thracians or Eastern European drank undiluted wine, which also made them barbarians. Then again, not all Greeks were the same. The Spartans, for instance, forced their slaves to get drunk in front of Spartan children in order to put them off the idea. But sophisticated Athenians drank to philosophize. Quick recap of where we stand. So the Sumerians saw drinking as a pure communal good. The Egyptians drank as an extreme sport, but the Greeks drank just in order to have deep and earnest conversations. And the special occasions for this type of drinking was the symposium, where only men were allowed and the only women present were sober slaves. A symposium was a private and very exclusive affair, at which dinner was served first and prepared their stomachs to endure the long drinking session ahead. That was paced by the cues of the organizer or symposioc, who never got drunker than his guests. And this is muy importante. Now, history's most famous symposium was a fictional one, written by Plato around 385 BC. And in this story, there are long and deep debates among Socrates, uh, the famous playwriter Aristophanes, who is actually very funny, Agathon, who was a tragedy writer, not so funny, Alcibiades, a famous politician, and half a dozen more characters. If you have never read The Banquet, it's quite entertaining if you can follow the many lines of arguments, and I will leave a link uh, for you to get this book. Chapter number six, Ancient Chinese Drinking. Now, I have to say that before reading this book, my only knowledge of alcohol in Chinese culture was a little book of poems I was gifted uh, many years ago by Li Bai, also known as Li Bo, who was born in 1701 during the Tang Empire and is pretty much the defining author of the golden age of Chinese poetry. The important thing is that Li Bai loved two things, writing poetry about drinking and getting drunk. He was really what we now recognize as a bon vivant, writing about hedonistic pleasures. Now, our author focuses on one specific drink made with rice, but I feel bound to tell you that it is very well known, thanks to many archaeological evidence, that beer has been around in Chinese culture for many thousands of years. Now, remember I mentioned at the top of the episode that it is often the case that certain names of traditional drinks are translated into English as wine. Well, this is very much the case of China's rice wine. The presence of rice alcohol dates back to the Xia dynasty, specifically during the reign of Yu the Great. The drink in question was prepared by fermenting rice with mulberry leaves. While some emperors, we are told, had a real aversion to alcohol, specifically disorderly drunkenness, others were alarmingly fond of boozing and were worryingly relaxed about its regulation, or lack of it. And perhaps in Chinese history, there is more written about the rules than about the alcoholic drinks themselves, which tells us two things, as the author points out. One, that people drank in spite of regulations. Two, that many emperors saw this as a problem and took action for shaping their society from a wet culture into a dry culture. And there are many famous drinkers in Chinese history, but one that is particularly important is Confucius, who apparently was blessed with a very vigorous liver and could drink as much as he liked. And just like Socrates, he never got drunk. And that pretty much became a Chinese benchmark and role model of decorum. 
Forsyth tells us that the Israelites never thought of making beer and were not that enthusiastic about making wine in spite of living in the perfect vineyard country. What they had was a drink called shekar, which was a sort of grappa wine, only that it was a very occasional luxury. Thanks to biblical texts, we have been led to believe that alcohol was so inconsequential for these people that there are no taverns mentioned in the Old Testament, which honestly doesn't really imply that people didn't drink, just that maybe they chose not to write about that. Anyways, we do know about a radical Jewish group known as the Nazarites, who never drank any wine or alcohol, and they also never had any haircuts which seems an interesting way to achieve spiritual enlightenment. <laughs> and you know one of these people, because there is one mentioned by name in the Old Testament, and that is Samson. And we know how the story goes and what his kryptonite was. And then we get to Jesus, the son of a teenage girl and a dove, who started his career by dropping 120 gallons of booze to sort out a pair of newlyweds in Cana. And that pretty much sets the tune for early Christians, because wine instantly became a good thing. It was good for drinking, good for blessing, and certainly good for celebrating. It should be pointed out here that turning water into wine was a reasonably well-known miracle in the ancient world. But to make a very long story short, let's say that throughout history, Christians might have had conflicting relationships with alcohol, but they certainly never went completely teetotal. At least the Catholic branch never did. And, and alcohol, specifically wine, remained at the center of its most holy ritual of transubstantiation during the Eucharist, which remains pretty much unaltered to our days. Chapter 8. The Roman Convivium And so we get to ancient Rome, that at some point became a slightly vulgar version of the Greek culture, imitating many aspects of it. But in fact, drunkenness itself was frowned upon, at least for some centuries. A very telling Roman proverb that the author provides us with says, three things are bad, night, women and wine. <laughs> and they were actually quite militant about it until they became an empire and then everything changed. Drinking became a power move inflicted upon others in their distorted version of the Greek symposium, known to the Romans as convivium, which was anything but a gathering to have philosophical thoughts. And this is how it worked. So those invited to a convivium were mere pawns in a humiliating spectacle where they were forced to bow to their host and to have their own place and status robbed on their faces and forced to do the same to others below them. You know, a normal corporate dinner. And it's perhaps then the author ponders when the famous Italian snobbery about wines got started because above all, conviviums were about ostentation and bragging about how expensive, how old, how unique their wine was. So really, some things don't seem to change that much. Chapter 9. The Dark Ages Another quick recap. The Middle Ages is a thousand-year period between the ancient world and the Renaissance, and it begins with the fall of the Roman Empire. The medieval period took place in Europe, and it's also called the Dark Ages simply because there were so little written documents made during this time. The author is very quick to tell us that while the Roman Empire disappeared, wine didn't. And following tradition, the barbarians who contributed to the destruction of the empire did just as the Romans when they conquered ancient Greece and adopted quite a few of their traditions, including a taste for wine. And not only that, but hundreds of years later, wine, along with beer, became the backbone of the monastic entrepreneurial culture that helped maintain and grow the knowledge, technology and consumption of wine and beer to our days. In chapter 10, Drinking in the Middle East, we learn that the cultures that flourished in the Middle East have always had a very complicated and confusing relationship with alcohol that persists to our days. Forsyth tells us that according to the Quran, paradise contains 
whole rivers of wine. Surah 47.15 specifically says, Rivers of wine delicious to those who drink, and rivers of purified honey in which they will have all kinds of fruits and forgiveness from their Lord. And further on, on Surah 83, says that the Quran promises that good Muslims will be rewarded with seal flasks of wine. Now, it all sounds enticingly good. In fact, a bit too good. Because we know that just as they seem alarmingly enthusiastic about the prospect of eternal drunkenness, they were radically intolerant to drinking while still on this earth. In the book, we are actually provided with very good and illustrative examples of the Prophet Muhammad's position regarding drinking, which explains the prickly position and moral dilemma that alcohol has for the Muslim world. And we also learn of certain loopholes and workarounds uh, to drinking, a form of social control very much laced with mysticism, religion and a lot of moral codes which of course is radically different to what we find in chapter 11 when we learn about the Viking Sumble. For rowdy Vikings, there were a few things better than sailing rough waves, pillaging or battling, and that was getting drunk. So alcohol itself was pretty much a religion ruled by Odin, who drank wine and loads of it. Alcohol was much more than social lubricant for the Vikings because it was part of the cultural tissue and was present in every aspect of their lives. But as the author tells us, there were three different types of alcohol and each of them had a different function. So of course we are reminded that wine wasn't produced in Scandinavia, of course, because it is no place for delicate grapes to grow. So they obtained wine by means of trade and invasion. The other drink was mead, very famous, which is made by fermenting honey. But understandably, for the binge drinking standards of Vikings, many bees and a lot of honey are needed to keep them drunk day in and day out. So it is a myth that they will have mead all the time, as is often portrayed on TV shows and films. So instead, what they really drank on a regular basis was ale, because they were actually able to farm grains. Viking society was extremely hierarchical and being a lord must have been more of a hassle than anything else because part of their duties was to provide regular alcohol for his warriors and they must have gone through booze like it was going out of fashion. A fair warning is that the author focuses on Viking life only during the medieval period. But we know that later on, by the 15th century, there is a new type of booze developed in Viking lands, and it is significantly stronger than mead, ale or wine put together, and that is aquavit, which is a distilled spirit flavoured with herbs and seeds uh, like caraway. But going back to our medieval Vikings, just like in the Muslim world, Vikings don't fear death, because Valhalla is presented as an awfully amazing place of eternal drinking and parting with Odin and the rest of the Norse pantheon. So being dead in the ancient Viking world meant being drunk forever, and that was indeed a very happy thought for them. In chapter 12, we learn about the medieval alehouse, and this reminds me of something. If you have read Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales, you might understand why it took Europe a thousand years to wake up from their medieval stupor. The tales are, in essence, a handful of stories about medieval pilgrimage to, you guessed it, Canterbury, and all the adventures that people find along the way. And a lot of the action takes place at tabards or inns, where travellers gather to eat and rest, but really, mainly, to drink ale and have sex. Loads of it. I will leave a link for you to a paperback edition of the Canterbury Tales, but if you can't be bothered to read it, then you might as well go and Google the raunchy 1972 film The Canterbury Tales by Pier Paolo Pasolini. You may or may not thank me later, but under no circumstances Google image this with kids around. Don't say I didn't warn you. 
Right then, so we learned that inns were very popular, but also taverns. But taverns were slightly different because they sold wine, and wine was very expensive, meaning that only wealthy people could afford it, which tells us that affluent urban dwellers were the main clientele of these fine establishments. And then we are introduced to alehouses that were a place where common people drank. So chances are, if I was a medieval lady, I would have been frequenting an alehouse. Or better yet, I would have drunk at home like most people did. Because we learned that medieval villages, towns and cities were mostly pestilent places where drinking water was a death sentence. And so medieval ladies would work the fields, tend the cattle, dress their family, cook, make dairy products and of course brew beer. No wonder the life expectancy for women was only 43.6 years. And in the other side of the Atlantic, on chapter 15, we learn about the Aztecs. So, <clears throat> being Mexican myself, of course I have to have opinions about this chapter. Actually, I have to complain because it's way too short compared to the others. The book specifically refers to pulque, which is the fermented sap of a specific kind of giant agave plants. Although we know for a fact that in the Mesoamerican world there were other fermented alcoholic drinks made with corn. But yeah, it is true that in pre-Columbian times, pulque was the booze that enjoyed much more attention than any other drink. We learned that the Mexica or Aztec people had a rather conflicting attitude about alcohol consumption because while it was essential for many rituals, it was also used for medical purposes and was hailed for its nutritional benefits. In the decline of the Aztec Empire, things changed. We learned that there were many draconian rules about the abuse of pulque among certain classes, but it was very tolerated for upper-class households for religious purposes and when it was prescribed as medicine or given to elderly people. The Mexica was a polytheist culture, so it seems fitting that they had a deity for booze. Her name was Mayawel, also known as the goddess of 400 breasts, who was in charge of supplying the precious sap from the agave plant. Aztec folk really got apocalyptically and religiously hammered, pretty much like the ancient Egyptians during the Hathor festival. In this case, the festival was called the Tlahuanca. This epic, mystical intoxication had exactly the same purpose of helping them communicate with the divine. Drinking was a very special and purposeful affair. In exchange, the author talks and talks a lot about the gene craze in chapter 14. And we are introduced to Madame Geneva, who had no connection whatsoever to Switzerland. The word Geneva comes from the French genre, meaning juniper, which is the most loved flavoring for the spirit that inherited its name, gin. I need to clarify that the so-called Madame Geneva is a euphemism for gin. And if you want to read more about it, then I recommend an article published by the Copenhagen Distillery by Jeffrey Stratton. You can look for the link on the show's notes. So the term Madame Geneva is used to refer to the dark period known as the gin craze in the 18th century in England. And perhaps you have seen the horrific but masterful engraving by William Hogarth called Gin Lane, which he designed in 1751 and pretty much exemplifies the debacle and moral decay, although in a rather apocalyptic and exaggerated fashion. Anyway, Forsyth goes on to present a series of very helpful questions that guide his inquiries for writing this section. So the questions are, when was distilling invented? And when did people start mass-producing distilled alcohol? We are told that ancient Greeks had been distilling substances for more than 2,000 years, but they never distilled alcohol, only purified water. North African Arab chemists also used distilling, but it wasn't until the 15th century, that is the 1400s, when distilled alcohol is mentioned in books but referenced as a medicine. So, according to the author, there are four reasons why the English developed a passion for gin. 
King William III was Dutch, and he was a gin lover. Also, the drink was very popular in the army, mainly because most of the soldiers were Dutch, and gin was seen as a bravery-inducing drink. It became a great way to use the surplus grain when harvests were generous, and by the 1700s, London became the world's capital of gin. And here we are reminded that there is nothing more dangerous than a new drug, because the culture around its consumption had not yet developed, and drinking was out of control. By 1729, the first tax was applied to the spirit with the Gin Act, and soon after, in 1736, gin sellers were for the first time required to have a license to sell. From that moment onwards, taxes on gin were slowly but surely steadily increased, and with that, the consumption began to fall, helped also by a series of bad harvests. Chapter 15. Australia. Australia was meant to be a dry colony, and of all of the plants in history that didn't come off, this was perhaps one of the largest and most epic fails. So we learn of a certain Lord Sidney Bocklerk, who was born in 1703, who only lived 41 years. He was described by his contemporaries as a gold digger and always on the hunt for sugar mamas. And this came as a surprise to no one because he was the son of a former royal mistress. He had a very mediocre and choppy political career, but eventually he secured a position in the Privy Council, meaning he was one of the advisors of the king, George II, who was never too popular anyways. Australia was envisioned by our Lord Sydney as a dry and cashless colony where criminals were to be sent to live a life free of temptation and full of miserable and unrewarded hard labor. To make a long story short, the garrison, which was meant to keep peace and order, demanded alcohol as they threatened mutiny, and of course, alcohol was granted. Riots and corruption gave way to the needs to use rum as a form of social control. And so the army became in charge of the distribution of spirits to leverage power, and in spite of the many efforts to end the rum trade, there was no turning back. And while rum was forever linked to the birth of Australia, beer and wine also had a big role to play. But they had to wait until the 1800s to start gaining momentum, one that is still celebrated to this day. In chapter 16, we learn about the Wild West saloons. Saloons were simple but smart businesses. Where mining activity went, saloons followed, giving men a place to spend their hard-earned money on adulterated alcohol and prostitutes. Now, whether saloons were violent places where people got shot any given day and no eyebrows were raised, that we don't really know. Probably the narratives around the drinking culture of the Wild West have been grossly exaggerated. But we are giving fairly good and illustrative examples of how they operated and how they eventually changed. And from there, we go all the way back to Europe, to the coldest side of it. In chapter 17, we land in Russia. The beginning of the 20th century was pretty eventful for Russia, and mostly full of drama, war, famines, and power-crazed leaders. We learned that the endless debates about the events that led to Tsar Nicholas's downfall can have two versions. One says that the prohibition of vodka was the beginning of the end. Others say that it was the last drop that pushed an otherwise starved and angry population to a violent uprising that put a final end to the empire's excesses. Whichever version might be true, what remains is that vodka had everything to do with it. Nicholas II was anything but a bright politician, always doubting his decisions and struggling to get rid of the suffocating shadow of his father's legacy. And certainly, one of his lower points was deciding to cut off the state's main income by banning alcohol, and with it, drying the taxes that came with it, depriving an already aggravated society from the only source of twisted comfort, was a very bad idea. Poor people were struggling to even put food on the table, while the upper class rubbed their privilege on their faces. And to add insult to injury, vodka was still allowed to be served at expensive restaurants. 
To make a long story short, we know how the Russian Revolution ended, but it is fair to say that Russians, and by extent all Slavic nations, have historically been very fond of drinking and inciting others to drink. This hasn't changed much over the centuries. Famously, forcing others to be drunk became a weapon for politicians during the Soviet era. The author closes this chapter with a troubling thought that the average man in modern-day Russia drinks half a bottle of vodka a day. Oh, what the hell. Zavajezda zdrovye. And last, we get to chapter 18, which is all about prohibition. To me, this has always been a very confusing period, very much damped by the noise of pop culture and Hollywood distortions. At least we can all agree that prohibition occurred in the 1920s in America and that it was confusing, politicized and gave occasion for organized crime to run illegal alcohol trafficking operations. It is the author's position that prohibition wasn't born out of a wave of puritanism, but rather feminism, that made it loud and clear that women were sick and tired of being relegated, shushed and disenfranchised. Sobriety actually became an unforeseen consequence of all this. It all stems back to the moral wasteland that were saloons, and how they became the undisputed recipients for their husbands' hard-earned money, and presumably also led to a fair amount of domestic violence, and housewives wanted to put an end to it all. They also took to the polls in the big political awakening of the American females, as the author describes, and this was accompanied by the Christian Temperance Union that was formed in 1873. Things get pretty complicated during Prohibition, and there are many other pressure groups that joined in that resulted in the famous 18th Amendment. We are not giving a lot of details about this legal move, but I did some digging around. What I found is that this amendment of the Constitution was proposed by Congress on December 18, 1917, and it was enforced until December 6, 1933, after it was repealed. This was a fast and loose amendment, because it was as vague as it could possibly be, leaving us to think that it was always meant to be temporary, or at least that it gave room to operate on the grey side of the law. While it is clear enough that it's banning alcoholic beverages, it specifically says intoxicating liqueurs, so that pretty much leaves out brewed and fermented drinks. Anyway, the chapter goes on to tell us about the story of speakeasies, violence and gangs, but I was very much more interested in the unforeseen consequences it brought for the popularization of Italian food. People started selling alcohol from their living rooms. They were also making food for the people that came to drink and socialize, and one thing led to another. If you want to know more about Italians in America and the rise of their food, then I suggest you go and listen to episode number four of this podcast in which I feature John Dickey's book, Delizia, the epic story of the Italians and their food. We tend to talk about books of cultural history as something completely ubiquitous and normal, when they're actually quite a recent genre. And let me tell you a little bit about cultural history in a nutshell. We owe a bunch of French historians the huge paradigm shift that took history from only focusing on the classic world, military and political events, to promoting a new form of studies focused on the lives of ordinary people and enriching it with demographic studies, agriculture, economy, commerce, traditions, and many other aspects. Lucien Lefebvre, Marc Bloch, and Fernand Brodel were the architects of these new trendy studies and wrote loads of interesting and groundbreaking articles for a magazine they called Annale de Histoire Économique et Sociale and became so popular for its progressive thinking that it influenced a whole generation of historians, thus creating a school of thought known as the Annals School. If you want to read more about this, then I recommend you read the book The Annals School and Intellectual History. So, let's get straight to the five reasons why I think you should give yourself the gift of reading this book. Raison numéro un. There is a concept in anthropology that I really like and is called 
a state of bewilderness, which means to detach from conventions, common knowledge, the comfortable side of familiar things, prejudices and ethnocentrisms, to see social behavior with fresh and curious eyes, as if we were witnessing it for the very first time. You and I have done this many times, but perhaps not really realizing it. Think of what you feel when you travel to a different country for the first time. And after a few days, you take the time to simply observe people and start noticing their little cultural quirks, their idiosyncrasies manifested in their interactions and habits. Well, this book helps us do exactly that by teaching us the art of bewilderment applied to the cultural history of alcohol. And we come out of it with a very good set of tools to be more inquisitive and more curious about our relationship with booze. Motivo numero due. I really like the little exercise the author provides when presenting several typologies of the functions of drinking and types of drinkers across cultures. Drinking to make philosophy, drinking to connect with the divine, drinking to make a power statement, to indulge, to comply, and so on. And how we have used drinking in our everyday life as a transitional activity to mark our routines and create special moments for ourselves or with company. And it got me thinking about how much the pandemic changed worldwide wide alcohol consumption, I don't know, maybe a future reprint of this book will include a nice epilogue featuring this. Grund Nummer 3 For American psychologist and philosopher William James, alcohol created this cultural paradigm. While sobriety constrains, discriminates and says no, drunkenness, on the other hand, expands, unites and says yes. And that is really at the heart of our relationship with all intoxicants, including alcohol. And the author does a fantastic job at illustrating how humanity has negotiated sobriety and intoxication. And in doing so, we have created rules, meanings and practices that have inspired all sorts of cultural expressions that help explain why we drink the way we do and why some people don't even drink at all. Rassau numero cuatro. Quite frankly, this book is worth reading because it's very entertaining. And there is nothing wrong with this. It is well written, it has a sharp and knowledgeable prose that makes an excellent compromise between obscure academic research and accessible but not simplistic work. So, yeah, this book is quite my cup of tea. And last, reason number five. So we could really sum it all up by saying that we are simple creatures that respond to impulses and desires. Finally, we could really sum it all up by saying that we are very simple creatures that respond to our impulses and desires and regardless of the sophisticated cultural menagerie we claim to have, we have historically gone to great lengths to get what we want. And one thing we really want is alcohol. And the history of our pursuit for it is indeed the history of our civilizations. As you can see, this little book is absolutely entertaining and will keep you googling all sorts of weird and fascinating facts as you read along. It is a fabulous topic for many boozy conversations. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hungry Books, which was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. The name of this book is A Short History of Drunkenness, How, Why, Where and When Humankind Has Gotten Merry from the Stone Age to the Present by Mark Forsyth. And you can find the link to get this book, connect with the author, connect with me and find all the things I have mentioned today over the episode on the show's notes. There will be many more episodes and books to come your way this year. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, open a bottle, and more importantly, stay hungry. <laughs>